0: and refuse to listen. You play your games and
1: And welcome to America Can We Talk and to our special Thursday shows. I'm Debbie george For those of you watching online, that is a new intro that my very wonderful producer, Mr. Becker, so we're all kind of watching it to see what he put in. I appreciate it very much. And I also, we're going to dive into a wonderful and with a great guest today and a very serious topic. I do want to occasionally mention on this show, a great thank you uh, to the person who's singing the music you always hear, I am America. Her name is Krista Branch. Her husband actually writes the lyrics and the words she sings. And that song, I Am America, it captures this show. The reason I even have it, and I got her permission to use it, is because years ago I was speaking at some event and I'm waiting to go up and speak. And they have this, oh, this local person, Krista Branch is here, she's gonna sing for us. She sang this song. It was so wonderful. My husband's in the back of the room texting me, we need this music on your show. And so literally I I tracked her down. And so we got permission to use that music and it just summarized what the show is all about and i told her and she's asked several times you do occasionally give me credit right and i sure did so krista branch i am america fabulous musician i also want to welcome you i'm so glad our thursday shows are now for everyone they're no longer a members thing and everyone can be watching so grateful for everyone tuning in. And you, Thursday shows are so unique because we have an in-studio audience. We have not a bunch of show segments, but one person we're talking with for pretty much our whole show. And today that person is Kyle Scheidler. And you may be thinking that you've heard that name before. He did join me on the show before, actually several times. And interestingly, right after He Who Occupies the White House was inaugurated, within a couple of weeks there was discussion out of the Department of Homeland Security whether or not they should contemplate that people who challenge the election outcome should be considered terrorists. They actually floated that idea early on, and that oh, that was one time when Kyle was on the show with us. But today we're gonna to talk about what the Department of Homeland Security has actually issued. I will show you the language in just a moment. It is, a, in my view, a breathtaking assault on the First Amendment in the United States of America. But to introduce Kyle Scheidler, He is a director and senior analyst for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism with the Center for Security Policy based in Washington, D.C. It's a fabulous, serious, substantive uh, think tank, do tank, advocate tank. They work hard uh, to study issues all related to national security. They provide a lot of information to members of Congress, elected officials around the country. They research. They they are just a, a fount of knowledge for people who take uh, national security seriously so kyle Scheidler, again director and senior analyst for homeland security and counterterrorism uh he speaks everywhere he writes everywhere his writings have been uh he's r- written at the federalist on the hill foxnews.com uh claremont review of books uh he's appeared on fox news business newsmax one america news and on america can we talk most importantly on america can we talk he's here today to talk about a piece that he wrote and it is linked on our website. The, the piece is called uh, DHS American Thought Police. So first I wanna welcome Kyle to the show and then I'm gonna show you the language of what the Department of Homeland Security put up. Let's start by welcoming Kyle Scheidler.
0: Thank you Debbie, it's good to be I, here.
1: Great to see you, sir. And you know, I always debate during these whether I should look at the camera. I'm gonna look at you, I like, I'm like. i gonna look at my guests. I'm gonna turn and look at you and, ke- and hopefully the camera will keep us. so. You wrote this piece on um, what the uh, Department of Homeland Security put out, and you made so many good points. I want to go over all of them. And at the risk of being a little bit boring, I think I want to put up the language first. It's just two slides I made. I want to have our our guests see what the Department of Homeland Security actually put out. So I will not read the entire thing to you, but what you see what they're saying is the U.S. is in it. This is your Department of Homeland Security this week, I think on Monday. The U.S. is in a heightened threat environment, several factors, and they use this expression in other forms of mis, dis, and mal information. This is their terminology, MDM. So basically, the threat is information, say they, uh, introduced and amplified by foreign domestic people. And they're saying these threat actors seek to exacerbate societal friction, to sow discord, and undermine public trust in government institutions. I used to think that was a good left-wing thing to undermine trust in government institutions uh, to encourage unrest and potentially inspire acts of violence. And at the bottom of this first page, you can see what they're pointing to is this idea that that w- what you believe in, the furtherance of ideological beliefs or personal grievances, pose an ongoing threat to the nation. They talk about the convergence of, of some factors has increased the volatility, unpredictability, including... Say they were in the bottom paragraph now. It's important to get, this is not my language characterizing theirs. This is what they said. The proliferation of false or misleading narratives, which sow discord or undermine public trust in U.S. government institutions. And then the second slide, if you would, Mr. Becker. uh, Key factors, and they're pointing about what they're so troubled about. Contributing to the current heightened threat environment. Proliferation, again, they say, of false misleading narratives Online proliferation of false or misleading narratives regarding unsubstantiated widespread election fraud. So if you're talking about election fraud, I mean, they are just telling you it's unsubstantiated. And they're saying they're describing this as a way in which you can become a domestic terrorist if you're spreading this. Or COVID-19, grievance with these themes, blah, blah. They also talk about... um, Uh, Some domestic uh, violent extremists have continued to advocate for violence in response to false or misleading narratives about unsubstantiated election fraud. Again, they tell you it's unsubstantiated. And then they also, in the bottom, they make another reference to uh, potential danger as people who are challenging the government with respect to the number of Afghani refugees who came to America um, after the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So this is a government... Actually, I'm not going to tell you what that says. I'm going to let Kyle Scheidler... First of all, you wrote this article. Just give me a good, you know, what is the government's message or point? Take as long as you want to say it. What are they trying to say to America?
0: Sure. Well, I think what's, what's most important, important to understand is how the U.S. US government, government came to transition, to, um, transition itself. To targeting, it's targeting terror, terror which, has, has, terror, terror, which has, has a legal definition, and to, to targeting, targeting violent, violent extremists, which has no, no definition, definition uh, under the law. And so they they have moved from talking about a class of activity, that is terrorism, uh, under U.S. law, very specific incidents are, are terrorist incidents if they are perpetrated for political purpose, uh, acts of criminal violence. It has to be a crime and it has to be violent uh, under U.S. law. And they've moved to violent extremism, which is really a wide set of any set of ideas that they want to uh, targeted any particular time. Now, why did they do this? Well, I think they did it for a couple of reasons. One, it's because as the war on terror uh, ground on, they were clearly, you know, they had asked for more money, uh, more surveillance power, and they got those things over the past 20 years, but they didn't actually see any change in their ability to prevent terror attacks. So they are routinely embarrassed Uh, when the latest terror attack happens, and it almost always turns out that DHS or FBI or somebody in the U.S. government intelligence service uh, was already aware of this person. So they had all the power they needed to surveil terrorists, and they still couldn't prevent terror attacks. And so they moved to this notion that uh, the way to stop terrorism was to stop the ideas that generated terrorism. And This led to the question of violent extremism, and it led to questions of how to stop information from spreading, uh, most particularly over the Internet. So they created this um, narrative that terrorism is caused by ideas floating out in the Internet. It's not caused by terrorists who have a specific agenda, a specific political purpose, uh, and a willingness to commit violence in order to enact it. And so it's a total split from what traditional counterterrorism was to a a notion that is totally focused on narratives, it's totally focused on controlling language, uh, in order to what they think uh, is to prevent violence. Now, you'll see them, uh, you know, DHS or FBI, in in any of their hearings before Congress, they'll insist, well, we don't actually uh, enforce speech codes. Uh, We're not actually going to arrest people for what they think. So what is the point of a bulletin like this? Well, the point is that a bulletin like this is going to go to private sector allies uh, of the Biden administration, like Facebook, like Twitter, and it's going to give them the justification for silencing people talking about subjects that the Biden administration, DHS, and FBI don't want them talking about. This is, you know, it's not necessarily that they're going to kick in your door because you have a Facebook post. But what they are doing is providing justification for these private sector entities to ban you, to silence you so that they can shut down the conversation, which is what they really want to do.
1: You know, it's interesting. We're, I'm getting sidetracked already. My, what, my questions I had in mind, but I know right after, as people became concerned about Islamic terror, there was a lot of use of this violent extremism language to say, well, we're going to monitor what people are saying online, and it was uh, intended or, or talked about a lot as focusing on people who may be uh, pursuing uh, jihad in America or contemplating jihad or talking about, uh, is, uh, in some way, inspired by Islamic um, doctrine to engage in violence, and I think a lot of people thought, well, you know, that's pretty good if they can figure out online who's talking about engaging in uh islamic terror because of the ideology they're embracing maybe you stop them before they do something so we're not just finding out afterwards who the person was it's a very slippery slope because honestly i felt kind of good about the idea whether we had we were really in the midst of many many islamic terror attacks good find these people first who are talking that way but you, but now what, by what you're saying that began the slippery slope down to where we are today
0: Well, it's the great irony that they really undertook this um, euphemism of violent extremism because they didn't want to talk about jihadist terrorism. They didn't want to talk about the ideology uh, that jihadist terrorists have, its role in the broader Islamist movement, or how many people uh, believe it or or, or, uh, have some sympathy to it. They didn't want to talk about any of those things. And so they used these broad euphemisms. And the irony is, and, and maybe it's not an irony, maybe it was deliberate, the the broader they made the language, the less they focused on actual jihadist terrorists, and the more they started focusing on mainstream regular people. Now, we see this, you know, you take the microcosm example of, you know, the, the TSA at the airport. If they can't focus on a particular demographic where the vast majority of jihadist terrorism comes out of, they end up focusing on everybody. And everybody ends up being the mainstream. So that's a similar example here. You have, you know, large swaths of the American people have concerns about election integrity. Large percentages of the American people have concerns about COVID mandates and COVID policies um, being problematic. You know, we're seeing major reactions all over the world to these policies. Uh, And they have used this uh, violent extremism policy to target essentially their political opponents, uh, because once the language became generic enough, it could be applied to anyone. And so they never really wanted to use it uh, against actual terrorists. They always wanted to use it to target people who simply disagreed with them.
1: Uh, I don't know, Amazon, what is going on with the s- sound back there. I don't know if you can hear this. But anyway, uh, uh,
0: I am uh, working on that, Debbie. Right. Okay.
1: Now. Sorry. That. <laughs> no problem. Anyway, a little sound issue here. Um, I, I think it was two weeks or so into the Biden administration, uh, you were on the show, and they floated this idea of, of equating domestic terror with people who were challenging the election outcome, because obviously, even by then, by January twentieth. Uh, the left was well aware that many Americans did not believe the election was fair. I don't know if you remember that. I remember that just thinking, this is the craziest thing they even contemplated. One thing you hit in your article I want to talk about, you're getting at the idea that it's one thing to track down people who are planning on conduct that constitutes terrorism, uh, physical actions, but you you actually broke down the terms, and I couldn't believe it was in their regulation, but these terms of uh, the MDM thing, so it was Disinformation, misinformation, malinformation. and you talk about disinformation, which we used to talk about that with the Russian spies. your disinformation, you would intentionally spread uh, false material to manipulate someone. That's disinformation, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, what, So what's misinformation is?
0: So misinformation, according to the DHS, is information which is simply misleading. Uh, which is to say that the person spreading the information may believe it to be true, it just happens not to be true.
1: I mean, misinformation, if I'm trying to spread the word that the earth is flat, it doesn't hurt anything, it's just wrong.
0: Right. Well, they would say that misinformation is somehow hurting people, uh, but that you're not doing it intentionally. Now, I have serious questions about an intelligence agency or a law enforcement agency investigating or targeting Americans who are doing something. Uh, which they don't know is wrong, and they have no, uh, no evil intent. Uh, and then you have mall information, which, as the DHS puts it, is information, information which isn't, isn't even, even wrong. wrong. It's information that might be true, except uh, they is just didn't... So what business does the Department of Homeland Security have in, making A, making determinations as to what is true and what is false, and then B, deciding what information is good and what information is harmful. Now, I say in the piece, and I think we should, you know, reiterate, the U.S. government does have a responsibility to look at foreign influence, uh, which is actually how the, this branch, of the DHS, got got its start, was looking at foreign influence, which is a legitimate exercise of the U.S. government. Uh, and we used to, in the 1980s, we targeted foreign influence and foreign disinformation, but the way you do that is by exposing the truth. So if the, you know, if the Soviets back in the 1980s said you know, some horrible thing um, that the U.S. had done, the U.S. goes in and shows, no, you can look and see the evidence. Actually, this was not done by the U.S. This was done by someone else or, or is it a naturally occurring phenomena or what have you. So you use the truth to combat disinformation. And that's not what they're doing at all you'll note they don't have any specific statements that they uh, try to claim are false. They simply make these blanket statements about whole ranges of ideas, and they lump them into this category uh, of, you know, simply uh, wrong think, if if you'll allow me the term.
1: Exactly, wrong think, yeah. And this model information thing, information which you wrote, uh, as in your article you define, which is true but the government considers harmful anyway, so that is that. That is the government saying we really understand what people should know and not know. And so some things might be true, but we're deciding your the people shouldn't know this, and you can be actually considered engaged in domestic terrorism spreading this because after because it's harmful. So that puts the government a decision in the in the in the driver's seat, deciding what's harmful for people to know. Right.
0: That's right. So they are essentially saying that by use. By you saying or repeating information uh, that you believe to be true, and it may even factually be true, you may still be engaged in spreading information that they believe will motivate violent extremists, and therefore there's something wrong with you, and you need to be silenced. I mean, this is completely unacceptable. Uh, it's 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 so far afield from you know the American tradition of free speech that it really is. You know, as you said, Debbie, shocking. But they have been working in this direction for a very long
1: time. And the other thing that is, you know, beside that they're saying information is true, but it's considered harmful, there is a wide swath, on many topics, a wide swath of, of data, of, of issues, where really intelligent, well-informed people disagree on whether what is true, what is false. And so this, in part, gives the government to the power to say, we decide truth, right?
0: Now that's exactly right. They can say, uh, this is all you know, un, unsubstantiated and therefore uh, it's misinformation and therefore it should be canceled or blocked. I mean, take for example, during the election, uh, the New York Post story about the Hunter Biden la- laptop. You had a, a story that was a legitimate story, a very important story and a handful of former intelligence officials uh, simply issued a letter saying that they thought it was Russian uh, misinformation. And all of the social media outlets used that as an excuse to block the New York Post and prevent that information from being spread. And they are claiming that justification is available to them on any topic that they don't care for.
1: Well, you know, the ones I mentioned in the little clip I showed everyone of what was in this uh, DHS announcement, I focus in on the point they made about COVID, and because they directly address COVID and don't spread misinformation and about elections. So let's start with elections. What they're saying is they've decided what's true on elections, and you may be actually considered to be engaged in domestic terrorism by continuing to raise questions about the outcome of the 2020 election. Is that a fair interpretation of this?
0: No, I think that's exactly right. They are putting you in this broad bucket that they have defined as extremism, alongside you know members of Al Qaeda and the Islamic State, uh, simply because you disagree with them as to the facts uh, of the last election uh, and and how it was uh, how it was adjudicated. You have a right as an American citizen, even if you are wrong, uh, <laughs> even if you're knowingly wrong. You could still say things uh, about the last election if you wanted to, or at least you should you used to be able to. Uh, but, you know, why do they need this? They need this because it's a political narrative that they have been pushing since January 6th. They have used uh, this fact that people d- disagree as to the outcome of the election and the legitimacy of the election. They have used this to keep people imprisoned in the January 6th case, because they'll say that that individual suspect is dangerous because he refuses to accept reality. He refuses to accept the outcome of the election. And they are holding people without bail until they accept that this is true, or at least they're willing to say that they think that this is true and that there was no problem with election integrity in the last election.
1: You know, that particular example is really a really good segue into talking about January 6th because part of the, the battle uh, in the American political conversation, I guess, right now is the, what do you properly call what occurred on January 6th? The left wants to say it's insurrection. It was actually an attempt to overthrow the government. People on the right say, yes, it was a protest, and a few people may have gotten out of line, but it was a protest, legitimate protest. And this is kind of the government... Um, the people there on January 6th were there because they did not agree that the election was fairly, that, that they didn't believe the outcome as reported. They, they didn't believe that Biden won 81 million votes. But you have, but by this, they're kind of strengthening their position to saying, nobody can challenge this. I mean, it, it actually justifies the way they're treating the January 6th um, people still sitting, some in solitary confinement, because they're calling them terrorists because they've defined what truth is on January 6th.
0: That, that's right. And the holding of opinions is now, they say, dangerous. And if this person is to continue to spread their, uh, their opinions that what happened in the last election was somehow illegitimate, uh, or that there are even you know questions that might be asked about our election prog- prog- uh, process, uh, they're saying that that is inherently an illegitimate conversation. That having the conversation itself is akin to promoting violence, and therefore they are encouraging their private sector partners to shut down any conversation about it. Uh, that's why it becomes increasingly difficult to find any legitimate news source wearing uh, willing to cover questions uh, about right. the, about issues like this. And this is all, as I said, part of a part of a design to make uh, the issues that they don't want to talk about uh, verboten or unacceptable or, you know, available to censorship, which is then what happens. Well, they may not- hide behind private sector companies to claim that this is all legitimate, but we know that there are examples of the Biden administration and other government entities explicitly calling for action on, on, on uh, from private sector companies. And if you do that, you are then, you know, then there, you are creating a government relationship uh, in demanding that a private sector company censor an individual. That's a violation of the First Amendment.
1: Speaking of the First Amendment, that used to be one of the uh, standards that the courts would look at, not just was there an explicit refusal to allow some form of speech to occur, but is some regulation or conduct by the government even likely potentially to, to chill, the that was the word was in Supreme Court decisions, to chill the freedom of the First Amendment. This is downright intimidating. And you're right, you, cannot, you can barely find news sources now who will cover anyone challenging election, the 2020 election, who will cover the data that's being exposed about the election. People are intimidated into silence. I mean, I, I just think, I don't think it's too, too strong to call it, it's tyrannical. It is deciding we have the power right now in Washington. We don't want people talking about election fraud anymore so they're intimidating them they make become fearful they're going to be considered domestic uh, domestic terrorists and so the you kind of win the 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 biden team the left wins by absolute intimidation of the people and their right to free speech
0: and the great irony is that they are actually uh, exposing more people to actual real disinformation actual real misinformation because people now cannot trust the sources available to them because they know that sources that counter to the narrative that the government wants to promote, uh, you know, only uh, pro-government, essentially pro-government narratives, only those are allowed, so they don't trust what they see in the mainstream media. So they go looking for alternative sources, uh, some of which are unvetted, some of which are in fact foreign uh, manipulation. Right. They are literally driving people into the hands of the very thing that they claim to be trying to prevent because they don't want to have open and honest conversation, which, as I said, is the real way that you defeat uh, actual disinformation. So if they were genuinely concerned about this, they would say, no, we have to have an open conversation. We have to put all our cards on the table. We have to talk about this in a free and fair way. Nobody gets censored. Let's explore every question until we can show you and we can convince you uh, that what we say is true. Uh, and if they actually were interested in doing that, actually interested in having that conversation, it would actually reduce the level of misinformation out there, uh, which is how we know that that's not actually what they want to do. because that's Yeah,
1: what it's a great point. There are so many ways to go, and I want to make sure you hit this. You, you had great, great points in what you wrote. Um, One thought I had reading about reading both what DHS said and then what you wrote is, you know, there are many people on the American left who argue that capitalism is unfair. We have a grotesque uh, uh, distribution, uh, you know, misallocation of of, um, resources. We have a, a very broad range of economic wealth and down to poverty. And so the answer of a Bernie Sanders type, many leftists, is you're entitled to other people's money. You are not supposed to have to be poor, and so you—you know—you've you're, you're, been robbed, you've been cheated, and so you end up agitating people into thinking, following Bernie Sanders, yeah, I'm entitled to other people's money. It seems like, especially if you have someone engaging in violence, uh, you know, the, you think about the riots, some of the Black Lives Matter riots uh, had, you know, end capitalism, you know, redistribution of wealth. Now, doesn't that kind of fall into the definition of you're agitating people toward violence by your speech?
0: Well, you know, it certainly does, and it's interesting that it used to be the left that opposed any attempts to censor language or, or restrain organizations that were engaged in, uh, you know, let's use the term, insurrection, or were interested in the overthrow or abolition of the U.S. government. It used to be the case uh, that advocating for the overthrow of the U.S. government was a crime. Uh, trying to overthrow the US Constitution, to which our US uh, officials and all of our newly uh, naturalized citizens swear an oath, Uh, that used to be a crime. Uh, And now that's not the case. The left uh, tore apart uh, all of those acts and laws that restrained uh, communist organizations, revolutionary organizations that were seeking to overthrow the US government and said, you can say whatever you want, You can essentially do whatever you want uh, as long as it's not violent. And so, yeah, you have now you have um, Black Lives Matter trained Marxists, people who openly say they want to overthrow the government. And these people are on the inside. These people are elites. These people are given billions of dollars uh, from corporate donations and major left wing foundations. Uh, And it's people who are saying that they are pro-Constitution, pro-U.S., pro-government, pro-law enforcement. These are the people whose speech is being identified as insurrectionary, whose speech is being identified as a problem. So you have an almost entirely uh, 180-degree reversal as to what can be said and what can't be said and who is uh, determining it.
1: I tell you, what becomes so alarming about this is the uh, very left-wing nature of our present government and how far will they go in enforcing this? I mean, it's one thing to put out this regulation and say, we're really getting concerned about what people say, but, to, you know, so say somebody continued to advocate that the election of 2020 was not fair, that, that it was stolen, and then you had, uh, I mean, do you believe the way they've written this, that they're intending just to intimidate speech, or if do you believe that the way it's written people could actually be find themselves prosecuted criminally at the federal level because of their advocacy that the election was not fair
0: i think probably what they will do is they will use the advocacy or the the sense of you know whatever the belief system of the person is to target them uh for investigation and then they will then they will charge them on some other matter uh, so so I'm sorry. Charging with
1: some other charge,
0: right? So you, yeah. yeah. So the the real target is is the fact that what they believe, but then you you try to catch them on something else, or you you know you try to catch them on a gun charge, or or draw them into some kind of other investigation. We've we've seen that happen before. Um, but when you when you talk about things, what you're really talking about is the, the different way that they weigh the value of what people believe in these cases. So, you know, take a perfect example. We're seeing January 6th, people being charged with misdemeanor parading who are receiving more sentencing time than an individual who attempted to burn down a school in the Black Lives Matter riots in 2020. And that case was just adjudicated and they essentially let that guy off uh, with parole. And the DOJ said in their sentencing request, where the DOJ asked for less time for this arsonist because he was out uh, in the streets seeking social justice and he was operating on behalf, uh, or I should say in support of the BLM narrative. And so in, in a case like that, an actual arson case, which by the way, federal arson is a terrorism predicate crime. A case like that, the DOJ is actually defending what this person believes And saying, well, he believes good things, so he should be let off lightly. And they take the misdemeanor parading case in the January 6th case and say, this person should have the book thrown at them because they believe bad things. Now, neither of those people are being prosecuted solely for things that they said, but they are being treated differently by the law because of what they believe or because of what they have
1: said. That is a fabulous, fabulous comparison, and it really, you know, stepping back from the immediacy of those two circumstances, these are the kind of things that the entire justice system in America, from its founding, from its creation, were designed to avoid. I mean, America, with this whole notion of rule of law and blind justice, was intended to not have circumstance like this, where you'd have the ruling power able to prosecute their political enemies and apply a different standard, than is applied to those who are their allies. I mean, this this just screams, you know, third world, tin pot dictator behavior. I I, I mean, I'm truly, I don't even know if I'm formulating a question here, but I just can hardly believe that we are watching this in America and that there aren't even honest people in the American left saying, wait a minute, you can't, you know, you can't. Continue down this path of applying different standards based on what the you know the belief was of the person that you know we love BLM and we hate people who challenge the election, so we we apply law differently. I mean, I just I I, I will actually one question I wanted to get to maybe I'll throw it in now. I truly think there needs to be a class action lawsuit, uh, perhaps by uh, talk show hosts, podcasters, somebody to challenge this. I I mean, take it before it's even to to challenge what has been laid out in this in this. arena. Do do you know of anything like that? Or do you think it would be amenable to to that kind of litigation? Is that a good plan?
0: Well, I think the challenge is you would find it hard to prove to a court of law uh, that you have been substantially harmed because you would have to be able to prove uh, that they were talking about you or that they were surveilling you. Uh, You know, we saw, for example, uh, Tucker Carlson come out Uh, and present what he believed to be evidence that he was being uh, inappropriately surveilled. And uh, the left-wing media tried to just laugh that off. But it should not be laughing matter. Uh, We had examples under the Obama administration of journalists and reporters being uh, inappropriately spied on. So it's a genuine issue. And I think if we can prove uh, a case like that, where the individual is being inappropriately uh, spied on, uh, or inappropriately silenced due to the pressure of the government, then absolutely they should have a lawsuit available to them and they should seek redress. But I'm pretty sure that we're going to find uh, the government and the intelligence community and the uh, sort of the left-wing um, media apparatus is going to make any such challenge very difficult.
1: Oh, I'm sure. well I, I just, I, I will say that I, it's, I understand that you need to have a, I mean, to have, for most forms of litigation, you have to have standing. You have to have personal harm. I mean, I just think it's what they've written is unconstitutional on its face. I, I would like to have some kind of judicial review, and I can't think of the term. Here, I'm a lawyer. I can't think of the term, but the kind of review before you wait till you're uh, you've been harmed by it, because it, it seems on its face patently absurdly unconstitutional. You're going to you're basically saying, hey, I'm the government. And I'm not no one. And people who don't agree with me on COVID, people don't agree that I was duly elected. uh, You can't talk anymore because you might because you might be considered a terrorist. Okay, you made numerous great points in your article. I want to hit a couple other of them. Um, We talked earlier about the idea that you know they're no longer going after actions, they're going after what you think. They're also defining what's true and what's not true, but they're also changing the standard. This idea that you don't have to. The question is not whether you are telling the truth or not, is whether or not the government surmises your behavior may be unsafe, or it may caught it what you're, you're, you're saying, or the actions that flow from what you're saying. Uh, the standard the court can look at, the government wants to look at it is, is it safe or dangerous for you to say that? I, I mean, that just goes so far outside the arena of federal regulation of speech. I think it's my I love to have you address address that. I mean, how in the world can we do we get to this place that we're gonna let the government decide whether what you can say, whether it's safe to say that.
0: Well, well and they're 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 expanding the rubric of terrorism beyond even just what you say into what you believe or what you think. You know, it is not illegal in this country to be a racist, but they are using that I belief, which you know, obviously I oppose racism, but they're using that belief to say you are a potential terrorist or even things that aren't even rational, uh, a genuine, uh, you know, schizophrenic type conspiracy theories like, you know, I need to wrap tinfoil around my head to protect me from the waves that the government is sending something like that. Yeah. And they're saying, well, you are dangerous because of this thing that you believe. You, you may not even be mentally well, and yet they're comparing you to a terrorist. And when they do that, Not only do they make uh, everyone less free, but they also make us less safe because they're no longer focusing on genuine real terrorists. They're focusing on all manner of crazy people and creep people who believe silly things and people who believe maybe hateful things that we don't like, but which are not illegal. Uh, And they're focusing on everything except what they're supposed to be focusing on, which is actual genuine terrorists who have a desire to to political violence for a political cause.
1: So how do you see this moving forward? Do you think this is just something DHS put out as a another avenue to um, silence people? You mentioned social media companies being able to say, well, look, I mean, DHS even said this, this is why we have to shut you down. I mean, do you think it's more of a, just kind of a, a silencing technique or, do you, or, or, or how else could this be used against the people? I mean, I just, I, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm so outraged, but I can hardly believe it. But how else could it be used against the people?
0: You know, I, I see it being used to justify broad surveillance, maybe inappropriate surveillance right. against individuals, and then once you have that surveillance, finding things that they have done wrong and using it to charge them or arrest them. Um, you know, because you know, there's that old saying that everyone commits one felony a day because you know the U.S felony code is so broad and there are so many regulations that people don't know anything about, if you spy on somebody long enough, you'll probably catch them doing something they shouldn't have done. Uh, And then, you know, then the government has the ability to to put pressure on them. Uh, You might see them using information that they gather about what somebody believes in order to target that person for a sting operation. I suspect you'll see them uh, beginning to put information into indictments against people uh that reflects not what that person did but what that person believes uh on issues that may be totally irrelevant uh you know now that doesn't mean that someone should be engaging in criminal acts you know if somebody is uh, i don't know illegally selling firearms or something that's bad the u.s government should try to stop them but they don't need to get into uh the details of what that person believes, which the government wants to say is false and bad. And so they can use an indictment like that and say, look at this bad person who believes all these bad things. Uh, if you're like this person, you're a terrorist too. Uh, in order to justify this behavior, instead of simply enforcing the law, uh, preventing people from engaging in criminal acts, targeting genuine conspiracies of violence or general crim- genuine criminal conspiracies, instead they're going to be uh, wasting their time uh, targeting this broad band of people, trying to smear the majority with the acts of a small number of individuals.
1: You know, Kyle, I didn't pick up on something you said a moment ago, and I want to be sure just to reiterate it, because I, I also I did not know this until you said it, that in the sentencing of someone related to an actual arson, engaging in arson during the BLM riots in 2020, the government put in its sentencing Submission to the court sentencing recommendation that they should go light on this person because, after all, he's just standing up for social justice and for the Black Lives Matter cause. I I mean, honestly, I I... yes,
0: they literally they literally said that was a reason for a lesser sentence. Now the irony there is that by saying he was acting for a political cause, they are admitting that his motivation was political, which would mean that the arson could be charged as a predicate crime for terrorism. They yes. were essentially saying, we know he's a terrorist because we know he had a political cause and we like that political cause, so it's okay, so you shouldn't punish him as much.
1: I'm actually, I'm blown away by the idea that a federal, a, a lawyer working with the federal government writing that pleading would would not, would, you know, would submit that to a court. It seems like the court would say... What are you even talking about? You do you not know, you're, you're taking sides and advocating for his political viewpoints on Black Lives Matter or, or, or whatever social justice issues he's standing for. I mean, it should be it should have been the court openly rejecting and or, and, and stating that. Um, anyway, I, I'm blown away by that. OK, speaking of politics, I want you know, I mentioned to you on the earlier table emailing about um, Mitch McConnell. I know you guys are nonpartisan, but I'm not. So Mitch McConnell, um, who's uh, you know not the he is the minority leader, the, the Senate minority leader, he actually has recently taken sides saying that people can never be, um, he's basically saying January 6th was a terror attack and he is denouncing the RNC because they, they um, censored uh, the two Republicans who served in the January 6th committee. And I was just getting around to the fact McConnell is essentially agreeing with the left wing this was a terrorist attack this was a i guess he's a great insurrection i i mean it makes me worry that people in positions of power in washington they just don't want to have to take a strong stand, it's easier, and, and this kind of DHS thing you're we're talking about, this helps McConnell say, well, see, now the DH says this, and so people just, McConnell submits, well, he always submits, but I mean, many Republicans and others are gonna be afraid to stand up because this kind of thing is intimidating on, on too many fronts.
0: Well, I mean, I think it's a pretty clear example that you know where Senator McConnell gets his news Uh, And it's not from, you know, my friend, Julie Kelly at American Greatness, who has really literally written the book on January 6th and what was actually happening and the very serious questions that there are and ought to be answered as to who was responsible for instigating uh, what violence did occur. Um, You know, Mitch McConnell apparently knows about none of that. Apparently, he doesn't even watch uh, or pay attention to uh, some of the senators in his own caucus, such as Senator Ron Johnson, who has done a wonderful job uh, digging into very serious questions about who was responsible for January 6th and the, ultim- uh, the opening violence, uh, who uh, arranged for uh, the taking down of barricades, uh, who encouraged and uh, urged the crowd forward. Many of yeah. them have no idea that they were on territory that they were not supposed to be on. Right. Uh, you know, and senators like Ron Johnson are asking very serious questions. You know, he's not necessarily assuming any answers, but he asking, he's asking the question, how did this happen? Who is responsible for it? Uh, and how do we know? And meanwhile, you know, leadership uh, like Senator McConnell is simply taking the left's word for it. Uh, they're taking the narrative remember that important word the, the narrative of the left uh, as to what happened and saying yes this is true it was an insurrection it was the worst thing that ever happened uh, therefore any you know anything that happens to anybody charged coming out of January 6th they deserve everything they get no matter how unfair or unjustified it is uh, it you know the left is taking this narrative of insurrection and they are running with it you know they are now uh, claiming that it will justify preventing certain representatives from running for office again.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Uh, and you have Mitch McConnell essentially saying, yeah, that's all fine. The, le- the left is right. This was an insurrection.
1: I'm telling you, this pressure, this is additional thing that DHS is doing. They are backed by the left-wing media, backed by left-wing politicians. And it is just, it's just just—it's like this... Um, force that is going to is saying to America we've decided truth on the elections on covid and by the way there may be many other things we'll decide truth on you know with respect to immigration or the border a whole host of issues what you can say at school boards once they've decided we can we define what can be spoken it's a ma- it's a massive shift of taking away of the presumption of freedom of speech in America and it's so easy for people like Mitch McConnell and others who don't often show spine, it's easy to say, okay, well, okay, I don't want to be controversial. I don't want to be the one who's arguing. So I'll just go along. And this is how you lose freedom. It's how you lose freedom of speech because you just, it's easier to submit to what the left is pushing. I want to go back to one other thing. When I was saying, talking earlier about litigation, a, a lawyer friend's texting me during the show to say, it's declaratory relief. I couldn't think of that term. You can take an, a, a government action to a court and seek declaratory relief. Now maybe, and just say that on his face is unconstitutional. Now I don't know if that's going to happen, but it seems like in this very tumultuous time. Because one thing they mention in this DHS thing is, yeah, as we're coming up on this next election cycle, we're likely to see these kind of arguments being made. It's going to cause violence. It could cause people to be afraid to. I mean, they're 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 excusing. They're they're using their excuse of having defined. Challenging the election outcome as domestic terror to say to kind of warn, don't you be thinking you're going to do you're going to bring these topics up during this very very crucial election year. I think it's ripe for declaratory relief. I want to get you on board with that.
0: <laughs> well, I am uh, not a lawyer, nor do I play one on TV, so I, I don't really have any idea as to the, the legal outcome of that. But you did say something really important that I think is worth highlighting, which is the power of the left and, and the left wing media. And the, the left pushed this argument about election integrity, about COVID, uh, people opposing COVID vaccines mandates being, being terrorists. And the, the bureaucracy, the administrative state, uh, and particularly DHS and FBI, the intelligence uh, aspects of the bureaucracy, immediately ran with it. They immediately went with it and said, yes, this, this argument, this narrative is true. These people are bad. That never happens under a Republican administration. During the Trump administration, the Department of Homeland Security uh, and the, the political appointees in the Department of Homeland Security were working very hard to try to get the federal government to pay attention to Antifa. Uh, they could not even get uh, the Department of Homeland Security to use the word Antifa. They were uh, they worked very hard to try to get the FBI to look into uh, acts of uh, black, uh, what was called at the time, black identity extremism, uh, meaning black nationalist or black supremacist violence uh, or, or violence against police by such individuals in support of BLM. And they tried to, tried to get the, the agencies to investigate these issues and they were immediately shut down. You know, The bureaucracy would not do the work. They would not use any language uh, that identified these types of threats as threats. They immediately leaked everything to the media, uh, which then proceeded to attack the trump administration so you have uh, you have a very serious problem where you know one party can be elected and the bureaucracy will do whatever it wants, and the other party can be elected, and the bureaucracy will do nothing that it wants uh it doesn't you know it, it won't consider. It won't investigate things that the government thinks should be investigated. It won't uh, pay attention to threats that the commander-in-chief says he thinks it's a threat. Um, It it was remarkable. I mean, you saw the the Department of Defense uh, all but openly defy the president uh, when it came to uh, offering security uh, for the violence in in our cities in 2020. And, and And that's a huge... Huge problem, problem that, we that, that we have. So when you so have, have these uh, DHS, DHS bulletins that get, get written, written, they look, they look like, like they were written, written by some, some little attack.
1: Exactly. Uh, and
0: it's, and because it's because the bureaucracy is willing to do uh, whatever, whatever they're told, they're uh, told uh, if they're told they're to do, do what, what the left, left wants them
1: Exactly, you know, as I use the expression it's "a loss of rule of law." It is a loss of rule of law, but it's a loss of just the, the basic integrity of the rule of law, and some politicization, the, the you know, the, um, yeah, weaponization of America's law enforcement agencies uh, and and the the entire apparatus that's supposed to keep America's rule of law uh, standing up and unbiased and and equal and fair. And it's so hard to think how you ever get it back because you're talking about the highest levels of the DOJ and the FBI seem to be, uh, I mean, even during the whole Trump-Russia collusion thing, we now know that they, the high levels, knew very early on. Hillary Clinton's campaign team cooked up the Trump-Russia collusion hoax. It was a campaign smear. They worked the Fusion GPS. And yet the whole investigation rolled on and rolled on in the eyes of the American people. And and you can start to really feel like the entire apparatus of our uh, FBI and DOJ are just hopelessly politicized and you don't know how to turn it around. You couldn't turn it around with four years under Trump. In fact, it was on full steam pushing ahead in his political uh, mission. I mean, you want to comment on that? I I just, I'm blown blown away
0: by that. You you just reminded me that... um this DHS office focusing on mis, dis, and mal information was formed as a response to the Russian collusion hoax, which had claimed that the Russians had influenced the election uh, by buying a handful of Facebook ads. Uh, so you had, in a sense, the DHS set up an office for dealing with misinformation, and disinformation, on the basis of something that we now know was, in fact, misinformation. Uh, It it is uh, deeply ironic and it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. Uh, But yeah, that's exactly right. That's that's where we are.
1: Okay, so Kyle, I will tell you that we have a studio audience and we have a microphone. My husband has a microphone over there. And if people have questions, you can ask. We're talking with Kyle Scheidler. Again, if you're tuning in late, this is Kyle Scheidler. I'm so grateful he happened to be available today to talk to us about this remarkable statement put out by the Department of Homeland Security, uh, essentially saying there's no more First Amendment unless you already agree with the president and the left-wing government on COVID and the election and anything else they decide you can't talk about. So do we have questions out there?
2: Uh, Yes, Kyle, thank you. Um, So based on what Debbie's saying, all these things, it sounds like the Marxist takeover is complete if if um if if you're being law-abiding citizens and you get charged for being patriotic or questioning so my question to you is the smith act is anyone trying to bring that back and put teeth back into it so we can root out communists or marxists or p- people who are inside trying to destroy america
0: well, i have to be honest with you uh i um I'm not um, optimistic that uh, any such effort at the federal level uh, stands any hope. Uh, but that said, it used to be the case that very similar laws to the Smith Act existed at every, in every state in the, in the union. And they were only um, led to be defunct when a Supreme Court decision came down that said, well, because this is a federal issue and because the feds Uh, have a law on this topic already Um, you are not allowed to do anything on this topic you are not allowed to investigate sedition you are not allowed to uh, look into the national security implications or the state security implications of people advocating to overthrow the government whether the state government or the federal government i think that now would be a good time to start thinking about states reviving all manner of national security laws for the good of their own states. Um, They used to do this. Uh, It can be done. They will no doubt face a federal challenge if they do it. Um, But increasingly, we're seeing uh, state governors, especially in red states, are more willing to push back on the federal government and say, no, I have to lead. I have to protect my citizens. Uh, So we're gonna pass the laws that we need to pass, and we're gonna enforce them. And so I could see a movement at the state level to say, you know what, we're not going to tolerate uh, anarchist violence. We're not going to tolerate uh, conspiracies to engage in rioting and arson and violence in our cities. Uh, We're seeing some of that uh, legislation as well in some states. So I'm optimistic at the state level, uh, especially in red states, that we can do good work on national security. Um, um, on the, the federal, federal level, level, unfortunately, unfortunately I'm much
1: more Canada. pessimistic. I'll, I'll throw in one comment about that about the federal level. I do hear so many people say I, I can't even imagine how America gets turned around at the federal level because we are we are infused at the highest levels uh, of all the major uh, bureaucracies in Washington with people who just are not on board, you know, with the idea of America, with the foundational idea of America. We, we just we, we have. We weren't aware of it as it was being, as these agencies were shifting, but it's very hard to see how they get fixed. And even when President Trump, I think when he came into office, he knew he was facing a big bureaucracy. He talked before he was elected about how, you know, this was going to really, a big pushback against a lot of people. I think even he didn't realize the depth and breadth of the invasion of basically anti-American thinking in all sorts of realms of government. And he really couldn't, he almost couldn't do anything about it. He could put his, his person at the, at the, you know, assuming they get them, get them approved by the Senate, put them at the head of the agencies. But the whole swath of just below the surface, a the high-level bureaucracy, you can't, you can't remove them all. Or it seemed like he couldn't. And I think he just he think got stymied the whole time he was in office trying to push his agenda by all those folks who weren't ever going to listen and ever going to change with that, the way they conducted their affairs, their agencies.
0: I am certainly hopeful that maybe the experience under the Trump administration will tell a a future GOP candidate, whoever that might be, uh, that first and foremost, they have to deal with the bureaucracy. They have to deal with the administrative state. If they wanna have any kind of presidency, they are going to have to rein in the intelligence community. They are going to have to rein in the bureaucracy. They are going to have to use uh, all manner of executive orders to target the bureaucracy to remove people um, from positions and, and close those positions down. There are ways to do this. Uh, it's a little bit technically complicated uh, and the, uh, the Trump administration started to do it towards the very, very end. Uh, they started to look at some of these tools, uh, but it was almost too late. I think any future candidate going uh, who wants to be effective is gonna have to go in hard in their first 100 days. Maybe even their first 300 days are going to be have to be focused almost totally on getting control of the ship.
1: Love that point of time. One more quick question. I can't see so anyone have one more question.
2: No, I do. No. Uh, I do. Okay, just to follow up. Um, so, are you working with any of the states to help draft or um, get this legislation to protect national security, or, or is there anyone you can point us to?
0: Uh, We do. I I can't go into a great uh, amount of detail on it, but we do work with state legislators that are concerned about national security. We have an officer at the Center for Security Policy whose sole job is working on state legislative outreach and also, by the way, state and local law enforcement, uh, giving them the information and the trainings and the briefings that they need to do their jobs effectively. Uh, information that they are not getting from law enforcement like the FBI or that they're not getting from the DHS. Uh, so we do do that kind of work. Uh, if you have state legislators uh, that you know care deeply about America's national security, by all means, put them in touch with us. Uh, if you have friendly sheriffs, friendly chiefs of police who care deeply about America, who care deeply about uh, national security, who don't want to see their city turned into the next Portland or Seattle, have them get in touch with us, um, and we would love to help them.
1: Kyle Schradler, I cannot tell you how glad I am you're available to us well, Thank you for joining us so very much today. Thank you for being here. I, honestly, we're all, we're shaking our heads, but we're so happy you're available to join us. So thank you so much. Thank you. And, I, and to wrap up today's show again, Kyle Schradler, the organization's called Center for Security Policy. Their website is centerforsecuritypolicy.org or as they often remind me, you can also find them at securefreedom.org. The work of the Center for Security Policy is just invaluable, extraordinary for uh, a whole host of issues related to national security. I just wanna thank everyone for tuning in to America Can We Talk for today. It's a very serious topic. Uh, I wish, I'm wish i gonna ha- hopefully have Kyle back again very soon to talk again and more depth about what we can be doing, uh, but this could not be a more serious threat To America. I do this show America can we talk to stand up and speak up for America. And I'll tell you that, you know, many, many, many issues we talk about but if you lose the ability to have freedom of speech to speak up and to and to explore the issues that government doesn't want you to talk about, you really don't have the republic anymore. I am Debbie George This is America Can We Talk? I do every my show is every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. However, you're listening, I urge you to start listening on the website at AmericaCanWeTalk.org. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I do this show because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time.
0: America, can we talk? truth about America.